2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a Type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss your digestion with nutraceutical formulator Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn how to optimize your sleep quality with naturopath Dr. Penny Kendall Reed. We'll discover how Ozempic works with health and wellness researcher David Nelson. And lastly, we'll find out how vegetarians can eat healthily with dietitian Shauna Lindzen. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Does thinking about faith make religious people more likely to take leaps? A new study led by York University Faculty of Health says yes, finding that participants were more likely to take risks when thinking about God as a benevolent protector. While the theoretical link between a belief in God and risk-taking has been around for a while, the methods previous studies employed to test this weren't the strongest, based on current best practices, says lead author Sindel White, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. Our carefully designed study confirmed that those who believe God will protect them from negative consequences will feel more confident from pursuing potentially dangerous or uncertain activities because of a perceived safety net, White says. The findings don't tell us whether religious people are more likely to pursue risks than non-religious ones, but they may point to a sense of safety that a belief in God provides. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in Physiology and Biomedical Engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on the show. Happy New Year, Gordon. How are you doing?
0: Very good, Jamie. I hope you had a very good holiday.
2: Always fun to take a few days off, that is for sure.
0: Uh, Did you overindulge as usual?
2: Yes, that's a hard yes. We host we host uh, New Year's Eve, and I'm proud to say, even though our kids are all adults, they all hang out with us on New Year's Eve, which is pretty cool. I think,
0: <laughs> at that age, they will. It's when they're in that 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 age, you know, the younger years, when you're not cool enough, you know.
2: You, you know, it, you know. It's interesting, Gordon. Ever since they were little, like right through their teenage years, and er, and now they're they're in their early twenties and late twenties. That they've spent New Year's with us. It's, well, it's
0: fantastic. Isn't it? It's great.
2: It, it, I think it speaks to our, the, the way that Naomi and I cook meals more than anything else. <laughs> free, free food and alcohol. There you go. Free
0: food. There you go. Can't be that combination. On, on the show
2: last month in December, we were working our way down through the digestive tract, and uh, we ended off, but we didn't finish, on probiotics. So maybe, maybe we should pick up from where we left off. Yeah. What do you think?
0: Definitely. You know, a slight recap on the probiotic story is, again, there's nothing magical about probiotics in the sense that they're not um, uh, saintly bacteria. The only difference is, as I said, between them and what we call bad bacteria is the the tolerance of the waste products that they produce. Right. Now, now probiotics, one of the things I want to mention is that they work in different ways. One of them is... uh, in, is that the good bacteria competes with the bad bacteria just for space, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that's a, you know, one of your most common way of doing it, meaning that the, the body, for whatever reason, allow, or shouldn't say allow, the conditions in the body promotes the growth of some of these bacteria better than the so-called bad bacteria, so they out-compete the, the so-called bad bacteria. Right, and, because, and then because the body tolerates the waste products that good bacteria produces, it's a plus for the body. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to remember, anything living produces toxins. And because the bacteria are living in your gut, they produce toxins. And if your body can't tolerate the toxins that they produce, because once they produce toxins, it's released, and if the body can't tolerate it, right, that leads to ill health.
2: Okay. Why don't why don't we talk about some of the forms of ill health that are common to people, and we can sort of talk about, you know, what are their sources and what they're about, and, and if there's anything we can do to mitigate against the harm that, that's being
0: caused. The thing about probiotics right now, there's a lot of buzz about probiotics. And sometimes the buzz makes you think that we have the answers to everything. Right. That is not even close. Like, I mean, they, we have... There's some, some glimmers that they say certain probiotics, you find more of those certain probiotics in people who, who don't have, who are not obese, right, than you have in, in other people. But that's usually not a cause and effect type, type um, situation. It's, it's usually an observation, but it's not necessarily a cause and effect, meaning that just because you have more of this bacteria does not mean that, that you're going to be skinny. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the things that I I wanted to spell about the probiotics, too. But we do know, for example, that even in autism, right, if we change or if we give them different types of probiotics, there seem to be an improvement in the autism um, symptoms that you would see. Not a cure, but an improvement in the symptoms so there whatever so what I'm trying to say is that there might be something that these probiotics produce that either inhibit the 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 bad bacteria that's producing something that's causing the autism or or enhancing the autism, or there could be um the, the probiotics themselves might be producing a chemical which then gets absorbed by the body, which helps with the autism. Okay. So you understand? I, yeah, yeah. I hope I'm clear with the distinction there. Yes. Right? So that's one of the things. Another thing that, that I, I know a lot of people suffer with is like irritable bowel syndrome, inflamed bowels, et cetera. Right? Mm-hmm. And that again has been related back to the probiotics. Right? Now, in all fairness, if somebody was to say this particular probiotic or that particular bad bacteria. Causes inflamed bowels or inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel. It's too simplistic. It, it, there's a whole bunch of things that, that, that come together that, to, to make these um, things happen, make, make these diseases happen. Alright? So, but after having said that, again, it seems to be for people, some people, not all, who have inflamed bowel, that if you take a, a, a good probiotic, mix, right? You do seem to get better. And when I say the word better, not cured. Better in the sense that the symptoms are a lot more manageable for some people, right? And for some people it doesn't matter. So it's a lot of hit and miss depending on it. It's just that we don't understand enough about it. The the science is getting done but it's like anything else, it takes, it moves a snail's pace and it takes a sweet time to happen because there's a lot of information about, about bacteria that we still don't know about the, about the microbiome, right? Yeah. You know, and I do know that, and and the gut is one of those fascinating places. I mean, the, you know, the, it's one of those things that, that, you know, who would have thought that, Few, a few 20 years ago, that if somebody says, "Oh, we change the, the the microbiome in your gut, that it's going to change um, the clarity of thought, autism, and all that type of thing," right? It's just a, this hints and glimmers, but you know, but it's very difficult to talk about cause and effect and cures, et cetera, Right now.
2: Right. But even though we don't know all the science, we can sort of look at what we know empirically, which what might help us. So why don't we explore some of the things that might help?
0: Would okay. It- we we talk about things like the probiotics of course okay yeah. but there are other aids that people have used for, to help with the digestion right so sure. things like ginger mm-hmm. marshmallow roots slippery elm all these things are, are good um there are things like um l-glutamine which is an anti-inflammatory f- seems to be anti-inflammatory for the gut right mm-hmm. and i use the word anti-inflammatory very loosely because one of the biggest problems of the gut, the gut is huge. We're talking about from the, the, the esophagus all the way down to the colon. And it depends on where the inflammation occurs. Okay? Because inflammation could be occurring down at the colon level. It could be occurring at the level of the small intestine. And if it's inflammation occurs in the stomach, we call it an ulcer. Right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things about inflammation is that, A, it's very irritating to the to the gut and, it, and it, it inhibits absorption of nutrients. Right? Mm-hmm. It uh, makes you feel ill, like stomach cramps, etc. Right? Or or even more debilitating issues. Right? And I would love to say we have the magic bullet and take this and it cures all. Unfortunately, that does not exist. This, otherwise, if it did exist, there would be no need for medications, etc., etc., etc. Right? And yeah. we do know that a lot of medications are still being used. But what we try to do with, with some of these natural products is to enhance the body's ability to deal with some of these things. Right? And this is why I, I always say, if you want to use a probiotic, do not use one single strain of probiotic. Use multiple strains in one, in one pill just because it's easier. Um, the reason multiple strains... Remember I said earlier on that probiotics, there's nothing inherently good about them? Yes. Just that if the body tolerates the waste products they produce. And with that example, I say, if I was to go into your body and pull out all of the bacteria and just replace it with, say, lactobacillus acidophilus, which everybody claims is one of the best, is a good probiotic, I guarantee you, you will be sicker than anything else. So the, what the concept I want to bring across is that it's a balancing act that you have to do. So even if you were to just go in and, and just change all your, pro, all your bacteria, you can't just use just one, one probiotic. So you use a, a multiple bunches of probiotics, right? Mm-hmm. Another thing I need to, to mention about some of these probiotics is that you, just because you start taking it does not mean that you're going to get rid of all of the bacteria. So if you think of a concept like you have a lawn, if your lawn has a lot of weeds, and I come every morning and I sprinkle good grass seed down, you know it takes a long time for those good good grass seeds to out-compete your lawn, out-compete, sorry, the the weeds. And sometimes you never outcompete the weeds.
2: Yes, that's true as well. it always weeds. Yep.
0: Right? And that's that's, that's the microflora in your gut. It's like that. Think of it as a big flat area, and there's a lot of bacteria competing for space inside there. Right. And you might you might get to the surface of of some of these bacteria, but there's the ones that are deeper down, that's entrenched, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I do know we can change it, but we cannot change it wholesale. And the example we know how we change it, because I know for a fact that if you grew up say in India and you come to Canada and you've been living here for 10 years and then you go back to India and you want to eat street food i guarantee you will get sick and the reason i say i know this is because i have many friends who are from india and this is the story they give me all the time it says i cannot eat as the things that i used to eat without getting sick right so um, basically what ha- what happens is that the microflora has changed right but it's never fully changed there's always um because if you sit if you live there a little bit longer you get you get you the microflora again changes
2: Right. right, but but that's a yin yang thing, right? The negative is, you know, like you can't tolerate what you used to be able to tolerate, but it also suggests that we are capable of improving our our, our gut Definitely.
0: biome. Definitely, but when we go yin yang, it's up in the air type of thing. When when I say balance, though, with, with each, and I only use probiotics as an example of balance because you you know there's other factors that are involved, right? Sure but we, we talk about sort of the balancing of the different strains of probiotics, and sometimes health is just a function of how do we balance all these different uh, type of probiotics. right? now another thing that we, we didn't talk about is the immune pathways, Yes, right? Because the gut is one of the most powerful immune systems out there, and the reason for that is because you have to remember, every bacteria known to man is gonna end up in your gut. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have a powerful immune system working in, in, in the gut, right, every disease known to man, I guarantee you'll probably get it. Right it's important that you have a, a powerful immune system. Now, one of the things about the immune system in the gut is that the gut has a coating of cells called epithelial cells.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And what these cells do, they basically protect the the blood supply underneath from From the gut outside the gut itself, and what these cells also do, it stops a lot of um, uh, what do you call it toxins, chemicals, etc., from wholesale access to the bloodstream, or bacteria from wholesale access to the bloodstream. Right? When you have uh, uh, inflammation, what happens is that 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 barrier breaks down. Right? And when that bacteria, when that barrier breaks down, then bacteria that's floating around in the gut has, has direct access to the bloodstream. And hmm. uh, when it has direct access to the bloodstream, right, this is where you, you, you pick up a lot of diseases. So the uh, an example, uh, an analogy I use is that, you, you know, with your skin, if your skin is intact, right, you put salt on it, no problem. If you have an abrasion in your skin, so you have exposed the, un, the um, you've gotten rid of the epithelial cells on the skin, and so you, you expose the underlying um, tissue, yes. you put some salt on that, you will feel that salt.
2: It's rubbing it's, salt in the wounds, I get it.
0: Rubbing salt in the wounds, there you go, right? So it's the same thing with with inflammation of the gut. This is why the problem with inflammation of the gut is so so... Is, it is such a hard thing to, to, to fix because you have to remember one of the things is that, you know, the, the gut fortunately heals fairly quickly in the sense that, you know, there's constant turnover of the epithelial cells in the gut. So the growth rate of those cells is huge, right? But if the thing that's causing it to break down is always there, you know, this is what leads to a lot of um, ailments.
2: Makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Well, thank you for having me on again.
2: That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Penny Kendall-Reed, N.D., is an award-winning naturopathic doctor based in Toronto. With a background in neurobiology from McGill University, she's become a renowned expert in personalized health programs and is the creator of the integrated genetic platform Genrex.ca. Dr. Kendall Reed is also a bestselling author and serves as a medical consultant for leading supplement brands like Pure Encapsulations and Douglas Laboratories. Welcome to the show. How are you?
4: I'm doing very well. Thank you. Happy New Year.
2: To you as well. So this time of year, a lot of people, including me, struggle with their sleep for various reasons. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show so that we can sort of chat about that and perhaps impart some information that might help some people. Sound like a plan?
4: Sounds like a great plan. Sleep is so important, so I'm happy to be here to share this.
2: So what is the main clinically proven cause of of sleep loss?
4: The number one cause of sleep loss is stress. Whether people realize that they are stressed or not, it is the number one cause of it. We all release a hormone um, called cortisol, which is actually stimulated from another hormone in the brain called CRH, and that is elevated in every single person who has a sleep issue. Whether it is just, you know, a little bit less hours a night, waking up in the middle of the night for a short period of time or an extended period of time, it is caused. The number one cause is the Increased production of those stress hormones.
2: What about people who aren't stressed and have difficulty sleeping? What's what's going
3: on there?
4: Yeah, so those are the tricky ones. Those are the patients that come into my office and they're like, I thrive off of stress or I'm not stressed at all. Right. Um, But yet you're still waking at that witching hour between 2 to 4 in the morning, staring up at the ceiling, thinking what is going on. And stress, it really, it... um, Displays itself in many different ways in people some people everybody thinks that they have to be having panic attacks in order to be stressed and we don't for some people it presents as migraines for other people it presents as high blood pressure for other people it presents as insomnia or sleep disorders but it has been clinically proven over and over that the primary cause of sleep disturbance is an increase in that that brain stress hormone called crh And then we also see elevated levels of adrenaline um, and noradrenaline the next day in those individuals as well.
2: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. There are some people, and I'm not one of them, but they are capable of getting more than eight or nine hours of sleep, I, I'd like to meet them, and and yet they're still waking up tired. What's going on there?
4: Yeah, exactly. Sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, the first thing I hear with my patients is, can you test my thyroid? There must be something going on with my thyroid because I'm yeah. sleeping all the time, but but I'm tired. This actually gets into the quality of sleep, so we, all, we shift in brainwave activity from wakefulness into deep sleep, and we start with beta wave brain activity which is that sort of, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm, I'm working, I'm concentrating. Um, then we go into alpha wave, which is like sort of calming brainwave activity, into delta wave, which is a deep sleep. Delta wave brain activity is, is characterized by that deep sleep where that's where our body heals. That's right. where we make a hormone, an antibody. That's where we rejuvenate and rest. We do not rest or rejuvenate when we are in alpha or beta wave sleep, only in delta wave sleep. So the people that are sleeping, you know, 8, nine, ten hours a night and still waking exhausted, it's because they're not actually going into delta wave sleep. They're, they're just sort of cycling through the light, fluffy stages of sleep, not going into that deep sleep. So the body wakes up really as if it hasn't slept or it's only slept for a couple of hours. And this that in itself is another physical stressor, not spending time in stage four sleep, which then just impairs the sleep the next day. And what prevents us from going into that delta wave deep sleep circling back again to those stress hormones and whenever our stress hormones are out again independent of whether we think we are stressed or not our body thinks that we are hunting from that saber tooth tiger so the very last thing that our brain wants us to do when we're in sleep is go into the deep sleep because literally what happens if that saber tooth tiger comes I might die So as soon as the brain starts to dip down into delta wave deep sleep, our brain, our our adrenal glands, our stress glands actually kick up into function, release more stress hormone and kick us out of that deep sleep and let us return back into that fluffy sleep. So those people sleep many hours, but wake
2: exhausted. Okay. So uh, I know I have a number of friends and relations who track their sleep. Some people are doing it with phone apps. We've had some guests come on the show and tout the aura ring. Mm
4: -hmm. What, What are
2: your thoughts on that?
4: So I, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I'm not a huge fan of, of overly tracking almost almost anything. I think we're too tied into yeah. a lot of technology, particularly when it comes to sleep and we're supposed to be resting. The last thing I want people to be doing is waking up and checking and then getting all caught up in their scores. Um, the Oura rings, though, clinically are, are shown to be about 96% accurate in terms of detecting sleep, but only 48% accurate at deter- at detecting the deep sleep or um, the the good sleep that we need. And clinically, when they're compared in studies using um, polysonographs, which is what they use in in the sleep studies, the ring is always off, um, usually by an hour or more, either way, either underestimating or overestimating the deep sleep. So, I mean, my, my first response to patients is, If they were really that accurate, all the sleep studies would be using them rather than hooking us up to the, you know, all of the wires in the polysomnograph.
2: Right. Okay, so I've reached a certain age where, like, I wake up, and I have to go pee. That may be too, um, too much information. But, you know, my witching hour is kind of like five o'clock in the morning. And I just mm-hmm. I, I kind of not look at the clock and just pretend that it's earlier so that I can get back to sleep. But for a lot of people, the witching hour is earlier, it's between mm-hmm. it's between two and four. So wh- why is that? What's going yeah. on there?
4: actually five, five o 'clock is is a, is a, a different witching hour, but the the two to four witching hour is is cortisol is that peak because that 's when we 're actually supposed to go in at, at two a m is supposed to begin the peak of that delta wave deep sleep that 's where our melatonin, which is what helps us go into that deep delta wave sleep, which is why taking melatonin before bed is useful because it 's not a sedative. It's not going to put you to sleep. Once you are asleep, it helps you get into that good, deep delta wave sleep, which peaks at 2 in the morning, um, has its longest stint between 2 to 4. So that's why cortisol um, or CRH will kick you out and wake you up between 2 to 4 in the morning. 5 a.m. waking is actually uh, a little bit more indicative of a lower serotonin. Serotonin being our happy hormone. And that certainly plummets at this time of year. Um, in where, where we live here in Toronto, from the end of October to the beginning of April, we make very little to no serotonin from the sun uh, because of the wavelength and the angle of the earth here. And that often leads to an increase in, in waking at 5 a.m. Most people think that it is their bladder that is waking them up at that time. Yep. But again, all clinical studies show that if you give a group of people a bunch of fluids before bed and then you give them stressors like mathematical equations in a short period of time or horror movies, et cetera, they all wake between two to four in the morning to urinate and their cortisol levels are higher. If you give the same group of people relaxation techniques before bed, then they wake randomly to urinate and their cortisol levels are lower.
2: Okay. So I think I'm in camp number two because I never wake up between two and four.
4: What, yeah, sounds like sounds like you're in the, the lower serotonin, which again, we have a long stint to go before we start making serotonin here.
2: Yeah. So so when you say that the sweet spot is between two and four for, for the delta sleep, does that presume that you're going to sleep at a certain
4: time? No, it's actually on the natural circadian rhythm. So independent of what time we do go to bed, our brain um, starts to release, our, specifically our pineal gland. Starts to release melatonin at 8 p.m. and it peaks at 2. Um, So people who are, it it can get altered a little bit with shift work, um, but still that is the natural circadian rhythm release of melatonin. Every hormone works on a 24-hour clock and it um, begins to be released at a certain time and then ends at a certain time.
2: So what happens if you're not getting good sleep?
4: Yeah, so much. There's so many different consequences of sleep. Um, And and some of them doesn't take a lot of sleep deprivation in order to have that. Some of the the biggest ones are obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and depression. And studies show that even sleeping one hour less a night starts to increase inflammatory markers that we may or may not know about called ESR and CRP, which greatly contribute to obesity and heart disease, as well as blood pressure. And that can occur in um, just one month of sleeping seven hours versus eight hours a night. And every further hour of reduction, those inflammatory markers increase another 8%. sleeping one hour less per night has been shown to reduce the production of a lot of our immune markers by up to 82%. It has a dramatic, dramatic response. It does in- increase the enzyme that breaks down serotonin, so it increases depression. Um, and then there's some, you know, some things that we may not think about as diseases, but 21% of car accidents are actually caused by a lack of sleep, which is unbelievable. So if people are sleeping six hours a night, their risk of causing a car accident goes up by 1.3-fold. And if they're sleeping four hours a night, that can go up by 15-fold. So particularly at this time of year when everybody's out and um, it's or sort of past the holiday time, but you know, sleeping less and at different parties—that's um, really something we need to think about.
2: And and you know, my experience is that if you are obese or, or you do have high blood pressure, it actually makes it harder to sleep. It's like a, it's like a cycle, right? Like once you start going down that avenue,
4: you are it, absolutely it, right. Yeah, and there's a c- couple of reasons for that. So um, all of our inflammatory markers, or a great deal of them, are stored inside of our fat cells. So the more fat cells we have, the more inflamed the individual is. And inflammation actually crosses over the blood-brain barrier, which is like this little protective wall at the base of our neck, protecting our brain from toxins and all sorts of things. But the inflammation can actually cross uh, uh, across the blood-brain barrier. And then it will bind onto the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is what makes and produces the melatonin. And it blocks its production of melatonin. And it It blocks its release of melatonin if it has made any. So inflammation will start to impair the sleep, and those who are obese have a lot more inflammation. Inflammation also alters the production of our, they're called adipokines, our sort of metabolic hormones, and it greatly increases the rate at which we gain weight. So there's this little triad between weight gain, inflammation, and sleep loss that goes on. And to successfully treat any one of those Variables. You have to treat all three. Similarly, to successfully treat sleep, you have to treat stress. You cannot just take a sedative and expect to start sleeping and perfect your sleep.
2: All true. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
2: That was Penny Kendall-Reed. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic.
0: At
3: Pure Encapsulations, pure isn't just something we are. It's what we do. Clean, simple, goodness. It's a pure process with pure ingredients from start to finish. Each supplement is free from unnecessary additives and many common allergens. Because good starts with nutritional supplements that say what they do and do what they say.
2: What if there was a place that promised you leave better than when you came? Where the sunshine never stops, the sleep is exceptional, and the food is the best you've ever had. What if you felt the years come off? That's what guests say about visiting the Cretan Dream Resort and Spa. With flights to Athens, Greece direct and available through Air Canada, you'll be glad you booked. Find special pricing directly on cretandreamresort.gr. Hurry and book before it sells out. Find out why the Greeks love the island of Crete.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health, food, retail and wellness service business owner. He's written numerous academic articles and most recently has written about the importance of the acid alkaline balance of the foods that we eat. He lives in Woodstock with his family and he's a frequent guest on the show. Welcome back, David. Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year, Jamie. You know, this is uh, resolution time, the big R word, which I have mixed feelings yeah. about. And, uh, you know, we're North Americans, so a lot of people are resolving to lose some weight. And I think a lot of people are compelled to try Ozempic to see if mm. that will, will assist them in losing weight. But, so I thought yeah. it would be helpful to bring you on the show at this time of year so that we can go over it and sort of understand better what the pros and cons of the drug are. What do you think?
5: Yeah, I think that that's great. Um, I uh, I think this is something that's a huge question on a lot of people's minds, and I think that we should uh, talk about it in a way that's fair to both sides, uh, as well as you know challenge some of the narrative and see what some of the risks are of of, of getting everyone on Ozempic.
2: Okay, so so for those who don't know. Uh, Perhaps they haven't turned on a TV or read a magazine or a newspaper article in a while (laughs) or been online. What is Ozempic and uh, how does it work?
5: Mm. So Ozempic and similar drugs like it now, uh, a newly released one actually uh, just in December of of last year called uh, ZepBound. These are uh, classes of drugs that are known as GLP-1 receptor agonists. And GLP stands for uh, glucagon-like peptide. So this new class... They work on this thing called GLP-1, the receptor agonist, which means that they'll help that receptor work better and GLP to dock better or to dock there itself to, to activate the receptor. So they're primarily used right now. There's a lot of ongoing research, but they're primarily, primarily used right now in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So it was, it was mainly for blood sugar control that, that people were being given this. And there were some earlier iterations uh, of these drugs, but this one is the one that really took off. Um, and it works... By stimulating insulin production, this and it reduces glucose production in the liver. So this helps to change blood sugar levels, and then it also slows down gastric emptying. So you get a, it contributes to, to satiety, fullness, and that seems to help it aid in weight loss. Those are the primary kind of mechanisms that are happening.
2: Okay, so. I think we can say this may not be for everybody, but it certainly seems to work for a lot of people like they really Mm -hmm. are. They are losing weight. Uh, Let's hive off the people that are using it for their diabetes, which is a separate issue. It is extremely Mm -hmm. efficient for diabetes. What I'd like to focus in on is Ozempic for weight loss. It it does work, right?
5: Yeah. So so as a retail store owner, like you mentioned, I uh, talk to people on a regular basis. I work the, the floor of my store almost every Saturday. Uh, During the year, so I get to talk to people about weight loss pretty regularly. And January is a month where we talk about it a lot, uh, because of you know the resolution. And so, where where is this going? Well, Ozempic is absolutely effective for weight management. There's no question about that. Um, The outcome data looks promising, and um, we, you know, a lot of us know people now who have been on Ozempic and effectively uh, and essentially lost weight. there, uh, there are some, um, some highly beneficial effects, and, but there are some negative effects, unfortunately, too. So, I mean, we can talk about those side effects. But one thing that I'll mention, um, you know, in terms of effectiveness or an effect, this has had an effect on a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just people's weight loss. This is affecting snack food industries. This is affecting glucose monitoring companies. Um, This is affecting, you know, a lot of different things. So it's very interesting to see some of these other um, ripple effects to just taking this for diabetes or weight loss.
2: So my understanding is some significant uh, public companies like Coca-Cola, companies that make, you know, like snack foods, their shares are down something like Twenty percent, maybe even more, since mm-hmm. the rise of Ozempic, uh, and it is absolutely tied. The people that used to be consuming the sugary drinks and the snacks are not doing as much, uh, doing so as much, and accordingly, those shares are are, are now undervalued mm-hmm. or, or they're devaluing. Uh, similarly, there are companies whose main products are glucose monitoring, and as people take Ozempic, it's actually impacting that industry as well. It's it's fascinating mm-hmm. to me how how a drug is altering the economics uh, in North America, leaving aside, you know, the social impact, right?
5: Well, I think you raise an incredibly interesting point about economics. We're seeing this in real time as the, you know, the owner of Ozempic, uh, Nova Nordisk, um, they now made, I believe it was um, $50 billion you know, or forty billion more than the GDP of their country. I was going to say it's they're
2: so, responsible for like forty percent of the GDP of Denmark. Can you imagine?
5: Yes, that's correct. That's right. And so, um, and and their gross revenue, all the intake of everything, actually eclipsed the GDP. So it was it was rather interesting uh, to have that happen in such a you know a smaller country with a smaller population, um, but it just shows you the size. Of how big this is, and we're talking now about Ozempic. Here's the thing: other classes of other drugs in this class are going to come out too, and they're going to do similar work like this. So we are going to continue to see this. Um,
2: You know, I I think I think what's also interesting is, uh, you know, people are talking about. I wouldn't I wouldn't call it recreational use, but like I've heard people say, you know, I'm going to take Ozempic for three months and drop twenty pounds and yeah. then, and then their plan is to go off it and i don't know that they're aware that the drug is meant to be taken forever like you you're, you're mm-hmm. not supposed to hop mm-hmm. off and on it it that's not the way it's supposed to be taken and of course people do things in ways that aren't you know copacetic to the actual intent But I would imagine that most people who do this are thinking that they're going to go on it, and then they're going to go off it. The other interesting thing is, it costs a fair bit of money. And Mm -hmm. so that if you do take it for a long time, you're either going to be out of pocket, or as I expect will happen, there's going to be tremendous pressure on our government to make sure that it's covered. Because Mm -hmm. it leads to so many positive health outcomes, I cannot see how, for example, Health Canada won't be required to have it as as something that is you know covered under insurance like I yeah. like I, that's the way I see it going Would you agree
5: yeah i I think that something will have to be done. I mean this is clearly one of the largest weight loss and blood sugar modulating stories that we've heard in decades. You know, this is something a holy grail that people were looking for for a really long time, and now there's something with a lot of hype behind it. I mean, we've talked about some of the, the some of the side effects. I think that yeah. we need to talk about that. I also think we need to talk about just making sure that there's a lifestyle and prevention story here, yep. which directly, ta- you know, speaks to your: Are you going to be a recreational user we'll of Ozempic? Go on it for three months and go off to lose 20 pounds? Well, the greater story here is: Let's become a healthy population. I right. think you advocate for the, that on this show, hundred percent. And so, you know, that's one of the big questions that I have for Ozempic is how does this fit into the healthy population conversation, and well, can we use it like that?
2: Well, you know, you're, the interesting thing is it it literally stops you from eating as much, which means whatever it is okay. you're eating should have more nutrients. Because if it doesn't, you're, you're, you're not giving the body what it needs because your, your body mm-hmm. is, is no longer interested in eating the quantities that it used to, number one, okay? Mm-hmm. And number two, I understand that it leads to muscle mass loss, which means, yeah. which means if you aren't being active, if you aren't building your muscles actively, a lot of the weight is coming from your muscle and it isn't necessarily just fat loss.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that, that's because people aren't eating adequate protein. Right so that, that's where that comes from. You know, they need to eat adequate protein um, in order to maintain their current muscle mass. and if they don't do that, then or if they don't eat enough, and uh, the body needs to maintain blood sugar levels, and it will do something called gluconeogenesis, where it creates glucose from protein that you're essentially eating yourself. So, I mean, twofold response to that would be, Number one, make sure you eat adequate nutrition, which means that you may need to monitor yourself. You may need to do a little bit of measuring, making sure you, you know, stay in touch with what you're eating if you are on Ozempic and your and your appetite's decreased. And number two, monitor how much protein you're getting in a day and make sure it's adequate. Like, I mean, we do have some responsibilities as human beings living here to kind of like monitor ourselves. We can't just wait for quote-unquote modern medicine to do it all the time because, I mean, that's yeah, what but, prevention but, but, is. We've uh, got to look after ourselves.
2: You, you know, I think if you went to your doctor or health practitioner and got a prescription for Ozempic, th- your doctor would be doing you a disservice if they didn't tell you, hey, you're going to have to exercise and, hey, you're going well, to have to make is, sure you're getting your nutrients. But the truth of the matter is it isn't being marketed like that, right?
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, true. It and, isn't being marketed like that. And with all due respect to the people that have mobility issues or don't have access to certain types of food, I totally understand that. Um, and want to be sensitive to that. No, That's
2: I, I just, you know, I get that. I'm not. I'm not trying to shame anybody. And and if mm-hmm. you if no. you and if you need the help, if you literally can't lose the weight, you don't have the willpower to to do agree. to do what's necessary. I, I get why I get the allure of Ozempic. The great irony is if you were if you were getting proper nutrients and exercising to begin with, you probably wouldn't need to take the Ozempic. And I wonder whether the people who are relying on Ozempic are actually recognizing that they actually have to make the lifestyle changes in any event, right? Like
5: Yeah. And it's it's one of those things I think we've been sold a lot of simple solutions for a long time through various commercial interests and now people are like, okay, well and this is another one, but we, we do it's it's the hard work of living. You know, we do have to make certain difficult decisions and look after ourselves on a regular basis.
2: Totally, totally agree, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
5: Absolutely, Jamie. Thanks for having me again.
2: That was David Nelson. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building Community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign enlarged prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label
1: directions. Welcome back to the Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutritional leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. Uh, she runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. You can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year, et cetera, et cetera. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great Jamie. How are
2: you? You know, our lives are always in flux and change, Shauna. Did you know that? Yes. So yes. <laughs> so so my my wife who I've been with for for decades and decades has informed me and I think it's as a result of watching too many videos of like prancing cows and etc that she wants to eat way less meat. She doesn't want to eat anything with a face. Yes. And and so that means I'm going to be eating less uh things with faces and I want to make sure that we're getting the nutrients that we need to get particularly cuz we're both in our 50s. So, uh I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show so that you could explain some of the things that, you know, some of the areas that people who made the decision to eat more plant-based foods still have to consider when they're making that decision. Does that make sense?
3: Yes, it does. And there are many directions to take when you decide that you're going to eat less meat. Yeah. You can still eat um, different protein sources from milk and eggs, for instance, that's called a lacto ovo vegetarian. You can eat fish, that's called a pescatarian. You can be a flexitarian, which means that you mostly eat plant-based, but then you sometimes include some meat sources in your diet. And I, I think, Naomi, and you are probably going in that direction, more of the flexitarian, because I don't know if you're going to completely cut out meat I, or I, just I can't. occasionally.
2: I, I can't speak for her. I, I, I think she, you know, she, when she makes these proclamations and decisions, she tends to follow through. So I'm going to say she's probably headed towards vegetarianism. I'm not there yet. And, and I've also noticed that the less... Red meat, I eat, or fish, or chicken. The harder it is to digest those 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 meats. And 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 once apologize. you do eat once that. once you do eat them, right? And I think it's also a function of getting older. So it's something to consider as well, right? Like, in order to digest properly, it's like practice, practice, practice. You kind of have to eat it to digest it properly. That's my experience.
3: Yeah, and as we get older, we do digest things differently, um, nutrients, all nutrients, so the protein, the carbohydrate, the fats, we tend to, our, our bodies change as we get older, and then our digestion changes, and also the absorption of nutrients change. So we have to pay attention to, um, for instance, our blood work to make sure we're not deficient in any nutrients, especially if we change our diet.
2: Yeah, and and I would add, you know, like Naomi's doing this philosophically, but there are plenty of of sort of medical reasons why you might choose, or health reasons, why you might choose to to go plant-based. I I just read a study that suggested that really the only way to maintain proper good cholesterol levels is a plant-based diet, that if you're eating meat, it's virtually impossible to get ideal LDL levels. So, uh,
3: you know, unless you want to go on statins, yeah. It it depends also on what type of fat sources you're consuming. So in that regard, it means that if you're a very large meat consumer, you're having um, a high amount of saturated fat if it's not lean meat, like depending on what type of meat you're eating. If you're a fish eater, you're getting the omega-3 fatty acids, which is actually very healthy for us. But if you do decide to go the vegetarian route, you can also get the same types of nutrients through food or supplements.
2: Okay. So I guess the, the, the question begs, like if you are deciding to restrict certain types of foods from your diet, i.e. meat, red meat or, or fish or poultry or whatever, do you have to take supplements?
3: It depends on the person. So what i what I would suggest is have your blood work taken yearly to see the things that you should be looking out for are your B12 levels, your iron levels. You can't check for calcium in your blood. You only can check it through your bone density. So that's not something that you check through your blood. But it's very important to stay in tune with your blood work.
2: Right. Okay. And can you... Do you need a doctor to refer you to get blood work or can you just go to one of the labs and say, I want a blood work and I just want to. Check my no, you need,
3: you need a requisition to get uh, the blood work.
2: OK. All
3: right. So
2: I guess your answer is you might have to take supplements. So what are the nutrients that we need to focus in on and how do we know if we need them and how do we what, what do we do?
3: Okay, so if, let's say you decide to go vegan, for instance, right. and you're cutting out all animal-based foods. What we do is, as dietitians, is I look at the nutrients that those foods have in them that you have to make sure that you get these nutrients through either food or supplements. So the first one, as I mentioned, is B12. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's contained in something called nutritional yeast. So if you decide to go vegan, I would highly suggest to add nutritional yeast into your diet if you can on a daily basis. The other one is iron. So iron, there's a non-heme iron and a heme iron. Heme iron just means it comes from an animal source. Non-heme iron is in things like legumes and lentils and some vegetables like spinach, but it's not as absorbable if it's from a non-heme source. So if you get your iron checked in your blood and if it's low, you probably do need a supplement. It's difficult to get iron through food in general. And the other one is um, I always look at calcium, the amount of calcium people are consuming in food. So if you're going vegan, get have non-dairy sources of milk that have calcium fortified into them. Like, for instance, soy milk, oat milk, almond milk, that type of thing. Right. And also, I do want to add in there... Probiotics um, and vitamin D, those are two things as we get older that we should be focusing on as well. Now, a fun fact is that if you decide to go vegan, you're eating probably more plant-based foods and in turn, you're eating more fiber, which gives you the um, probiotics. So what happens is the non-digestible fiber will accumulate in your lower colon and the good bacteria will eat that up as food and um, proliferate in your bowel and give you healthy bacteria. So you don't necessarily need a probiotic supplement. You can just increase your plant foods and in turn your body's going to make healthier bacteria.
2: So help me out here, Shauna. Some, sometimes we can get these nutrients th- through food, but sometimes it's difficult. So when do we make the like? How do we make the decision whether we should supplement or just eat certain foods? Like, h- how do you make that decision?
3: Yeah. So great question. So anyone over the age of fifty should be on a vitamin D supplement. The reason being is it's very difficult to get vitamin D through food sources, and in the winter months, especially if we if you live in Canada, from October to March, you're not getting a lot of vitamin D from the sun. So I would highly recommend that people be on vitamin D supplements if they're over the age of 50. And that's backed up by the government suggests that in the Canada's Food Guide that anyone over the age of 50 should be on vitamin D. The other um, nutrient that I would say some people may want to get through supplements and not food would be omega-3. If you've gone vegan, you can actually buy a vegan source of omega-3 or you can also have ground flax seeds that will give you your omega-3s as well. And one more I just want to add in Mm -hmm. before we run out of time is iodine. So iodine is found in eggs and chicken and dairy. And if you go vegan, you can actually get iodine through foods and not supplements by increasing your intake of seaweed and iodized um, table salt. So that's a way of getting iodine through food and not a supplement. So I always say food first and then supplements, if right. you can't get it through food.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Thanks for having me, Jamie. Happy New Year.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Penny Kendall-Reed, N.D., Dr. David Nelson, N.D., and Shauna Lindsay. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The winter issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA, and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or, you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie@thetonic.ca. At On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson, wishing you a healthy and happy week.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.